You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. Though there are applications that can be made from this text, uh, I want you to reflect in praise the Lord for who He is. So when you, when you hear Scripture and when you hear today's text, that you can draw your mind to the personality of God, to the attributes of God, and be in awe for who he is and appreciate areas of his personality and his nature that sometimes we overlook. Now, there are two points in today's sermon. It is pretty simple. Habakkuk complains and God responds. Before we begin, I do want to pray. uh, And so let's go ahead and do that together. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for who you are. And Lord, I pray that your word leaves us in awe as we are met with your attributes. Lord, I pray that your personality and who you are jumps off the pages and that we can truly worship you for the God that you are and the personality that you show us. God, you are worthy of all things. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, before I get into the two points, I feel a bit necessary to give a a bit of history of what has happened. If you don't know, we're in the book of Habakkuk. Uh, And if you're unaware a little bit about biblical history, I just want to give you a quick drive-by, right? Real quick. Um, There was a nation of Israel uh, in about 1000 BC. uh, There was a civil disturbance, right? They split uh, due to the civil conflict, and then Israel broke up into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom, which kept the name Israel, and the southern kingdom, which was, was called Judah. Now, when we read Habakkuk, what we're reading is the invasion of Judah in about 612. The Israel, the northern kingdom, had already been conquered about 100 years prior, and the Lord let it be known that he allowed uh, Israel, the northern kingdom, to be conquered because of their disobedience. Now, here we are, 100 years later, after that, and Judah has become an unfaithful nation. Idol worship had become rampant. Things called sacred stones, which represented false gods, were strung all along uh, Israel, all along the nation of Judah, that is. And kings, rather than discourage, uh, discouraging idolatry, Rather than demanding people obey the law of God, they actually encouraged the idolatry and they themselves were unfaithful. The king at the time of Habakkuk is a Yoyakim. That's important to understand, I think, the story here uh, because Habakkuk is going to make a complaint and we want to see the fullness of the picture. So we actually see... uh, Jehoiakim, and throughout Scripture, the prophet Jeremiah, who actually lived during his reign, uh, speaks of this. He says in chapter 22, he says, But you have eyes and heart only for dishonest gain, for shedding innocent blood, and for practicing oppression and violence. Therefore, says, or thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, they shall not lament for him, saying, Ah, my brother, or last sister. They shall not lament for him, saying, O Lord, or ah, his majesty, and with the burial of a donkey he shall be buried, dragged and dumped beyond the gates of Jerusalem. The Lord reveals to Jeremiah 
that the king, Jehoiakim, will not just die, that nobody's going to miss him in his death, that no one's going to lament his death. In fact, he's going to be dragged out like an animal and be discarded into the fires with all the other garbage. And the Lord's making it clear that he is not happy with the king or the people that he represents. In 2 Kings, like the, the, you know, one of the history books in the Bible, it says, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. This is in reference to Jehoiakim, the king. So we see God is going to deal with this evil. And what I love is in Jeremiah, he says, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to humiliate him. But in the beginning of the book of Daniel, we actually see how the Lord's going to do it. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands. Now I want you to take note of this. God said to Jeremiah, I'm going to kill that king. And we see how he's going to do it in the book of Daniel. So when we look at Habakkuk, we're kind of seeing the fallout of what's going in the hearts of the faithful remnant in Judah. Because they're in the midst of a war. And when you think of wars, right, they're started by parliaments and by congresses, representatives from people groups. Parliaments declare war on other parliaments and presidents declare war on other presidents and rulers raise armies and invade, other rulers defend. The transgressions of rulers do not just fall on the rulers. In war, their sins and their decisions have a consequence on everyone within their kingdom. And Judah is no different. Their king was evil, but they didn't watch their evil king in innocence, right? They also participated in that evil. They permitted it. They too had blood on their hands. And they too would have to endure the punishment. And this is where the story of Habakkuk picks up. This is the backdrop. And maybe you can see why this prophet has a bit of an issue. So let's look at Habakkuk's complaint. This is the first part of verse 12, chapter 1. He says, Are you not from everlasting? O Lord my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. Now, Habakkuk is watching his nation fall to an evil empire, and he's thinking back to God's covenant with his, with his people. In fact, he is citing a psalm that was used as a confession of sorts for the people of Judah as a, for the purpose of almost reminding God who he is. The, the confession, the psalm that this was drawn from, 92 of, of the psalms, right, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You're before all things, you knew all things, you created all things. You created this nation, Lord, who's invading. So it's like Habakkuk is going, all right, God, I need you to remember who you are. You are the everlasting God. And in fact, he puts a question. My holy one, right? Right, Lord, you are holy. And so, if that's the case, how could you watch your people be slaughtered and humiliated and do nothing? 
Habakkuk wants desperately a positive response from the Lord. And notice how he ends this little section, right? He says, we shall not die. And maybe this was like some sort of self-soothing mantra that he's repeating as he's breathing into a brown paper bag, but I don't think that's the case. I tend to think that Habakkuk, again, is remembering and reminding the Lord of the promises that the Lord has made. Now, you can find this promise all throughout Scripture, that God is going to have a people for himself. And in fact, I'm just going to quote Psalm 118, 17. It's not going to be on the screen, but uh, I, want, I just want to quote this for you. But this is a, this formula is found all through Scripture. It is, I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. And so I love this, because I think what he's doing, he's going, hey, holy one, right? You're holy. We shall not die. Remember that, God? It's a bit bold of Habakkuk. It's almost like he's saying, listen, if your people are to live, if you say that we're going to live and speak and recount of your deeds, Lord, what can I honestly recount? Because I don't see anything good. Honestly, what do you want me to speak of? What deed do you want me to exclaim? Because all I see is death and destruction and desolation. And all the prophet sees is defeat. And so he's asking God, what are you doing about it? You're holy. So I'm deeply concerned on what's actually happening. To some degree, not to the degree of Habakkuk, we've all been there looking up to heaven, saying, God, what are you doing? Why, are you, why, do you, why does it seem like you're hiding your face from us? What is interesting is that Habakkuk has the theological insight to answer his own question. Look at the second part of verse 12. It says, O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. Well, that's that's exactly what God is doing, right? We saw that in our little drive-by history. That's what the Lord exactly told Daniel. That's what he tells Jeremiah. Right? Babylon is a tool of judgment. The nation of Judah has disobeyed the Lord and God is punishing them for it. It's a rebuking of their actions, not of only the ruling class, but also the people whose hearts were far from the Lord. Even those who maybe had been religious in their conduct, their faith was not a genuine faith, and that they did not serve the Lord out of love. Habakkuk is even well-versed enough to call God O-Rock, right? Reminding himself and God that he's not like a refuge, that he is, in fact, their refuge. So we see this. Okay, what's the confusion, Habakkuk? You seem to get it. Babylon's a judgment. Judah had fallen away. You seem to get it. But I think we all know what the issue is, right? It, it, it may feel a bit unjust. Now, we could Jesus juke Hab, uh, Habakkuk here. We could say, well, listen, what do you mean that's not fair, Habby? That's what I imagine his friends calling him for short. What do you mean this isn't fair, Habby? What, 
tell you, this, you're acting like this is what you deserve. All the only thing we deserve is, is hell. And that's it. Why are you complaining? Who are you to complain? Well, that, first, let me say that's easy for us who are living well. But secondly, uh, though that's true, I want you to pay very close attention. He's not appealing to God based off what he or the people of Judah deserve. He's not once done that. He's appealing. He's appealing to God to his promises. He's not saying we don't deserve it. He understands. They deserve punishment. He's simply saying, what about your promises? He's appealing to God based off his promises. Now, when my kids ask something, they usually can predict the outcome based off a nondescript response. You'll understand what I mean. Uh, if my son and daughter ask me, can I go, Dad, can we go to the park? And I go, maybe. They know there's a chance. Right? Maybe. He said maybe. He's thinking about it. They usually try to figure out the variables. All right, what do we have to do to make this happen? Now, if mom says, if they, if they say, Mom, can we go to the park? And she goes, maybe. Maybe for mom means No. Not only does it mean no, it means it's a worse than a no. It's a no, and I don't even want to hear you complain or talk about it. I don't even want to hear it. Maybe. When they hear mom say maybe, their heads are like, no. Not the maybe. Not the mom maybe. Now, my version of that is like, we'll see. Like, well, we'll see. I'm not sure what we're looking for or seeing, but we'll see. Now, if I say no, they know that I have spoken. I'm, I'm stubborn. I'm not changing my mind. If mom says no, they're like, you need some coffee, right? We need to get you caffeinated, soften you up a little. But what my kids know that in our house and what they long for is not a maybe, not a we'll see. It's a promise. My kids know, like promises in the Barry home, they're like blood oaths, right? You can't break them. So, and the reason being, my kids always try to like talk me into making it a promise. Like, you promise? I'm like, I said, we'll see, right? I didn't say promise. And the reason being is because uh, if, if their conduct is, maybe throughout the day, isn't what it ought to be, if they're a little bit more whiny or whatever it is, I might go, well, looks like someone needs a little bit more sleep, early bedtime, right? We're not playing the board game, you asked. But if they got dad the promise, then, despite their conduct, despite my kids not deserving it, I show them that I'm a man of my word and that even their conduct cannot undo my promise. And the purpose of that, and I think that's what Habakkuk is trying to appeal to. He's like, I know we've been bad. I get it. We deserve punishment. But what about your promise? You promised that we would be a people. It's amazing that even with God, Habakkuk knows that our conduct will not undo the promise of God. Now that's not to say that our conduct doesn't matter to God, because it very much does, and we'll talk about that here shortly. But Habakkuk's frustration is not simply with the punishment. First off, the punishment felt bigger than just a punishment. It felt like annihilation, 
Right? Everything they knew, everything they had was being taken away from them. Daniel even says in chapter 1 that the best of Israel was stripped from them and they were sent to Babylon to be re-educated. All that they thought God had promised seemed to be at a loss. It was gone. But that's not the end of Habakkuk's issue. The second part of it is, okay, well, who gets, who's getting to punish us? Right, who is becoming our master? It was the most vile and wicked people of the day, the Babylonians. Look at verse 13 of chapter 1. You who are pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallow up the man more righteous than he? So in essence, let me get this straight, God. We're not obedient enough. We're not loving enough. We're not worshipful enough. So you punish us. But with them, with Babylon, with a wicked evil, how is that to draw us back? How is that to make things better? They're worse than we are. And by the way, this is not a lack of humility by Habakkuk. It's a true statement. The remnant faithful in Judah made them a more righteous people than all of Babylon, where there was no one no one who loved the Lord, who only produced evil. Babylon is never, all of scripture, Babylon is a bad thing, right? You don't want to be called Babylon, right? If you remember uh, in 1 Peter, what, is, what does Peter call Rome? He calls it Babylon, right? That's not a good thing. It's, they're evil and wicked. Let me give you an example of his complaint. Imagine wherever you work, right? Uh, it's the yearly HR meeting where they discuss some things in the office, right? And... Um, the current HR director, he hasn't been doing a great job, and they're going to ask him to sit out on a few of these teachings. And the first one they're going to talk about is uh, sexual harassment. And they're like, all right, who can we bring in to talk about sexual harassment? All right, here we go. Uh, Bill Clinton. Well, that's a head scratcher. Like, why, why him? That doesn't seem like the person, person that's fit for the job. All right, uh, well, during... Uh, during uh, our talk about social media policy will bring in uh, Donald Trump. Again, probably someone not best fit to talk about it. Do you really want to give them that position? Based off their conduct, should they, ab ab above all people, be able to have that conversation? So that, that's Habakkuk's point is you're replacing us, or not, you're, you're reprimanding us with someone who, is, who doesn't seem like they should have this position. It's an odd decision, God. It's a head-scratcher. Though this seems like a good point, you actually know the correct rebuttal. If you've, we've all been kids. Uh, my kids do the same thing as I did when I get mad at my parents or when they, you know, they get mad at me for the type of punishment, right? What I typically do is I'll appeal to a different standard of conduct, right? I'll say, I'm, you're punishing me with whatever it is, but look at what so-and-so did. Look at what little Johnny did. Look what Tom did, right? What, whatever it is, you appeal to some other standard, but what do we say as parents? They're not my kids, well, Habakkuk is going to see that, yes, it is true. 
The Babylonians are worse. But guess what? They're not God's kids. They're not his. There are two sets of people that are going to have to grapple with God's anger and come to understand it. The first people are the Babylonians, which we'll, we'll be talking more about next week the wicked and the unrepentant world, and they will receive God's anger and wrath in full. And what Scripture says is that we, the church, will praise the Lord for it. And that may be hard to wrap your mind around because you might go, wait a minute, I'm just as evil and vile as they. But you've been declared righteous, Christian. Your debt has been paid. And what we're going to see as God pour out his wrath and anger in a way that will not only put our grace in context, but that will cause us to worship him and praise him for the way that he deals with wickedness. His justice will be on display, but also outside of the wicked world, there are people like the kingdom of Judah, that faithful remnant, the children of God, who also have to be confronted oftentimes with God's anger. Now the anger, the Lord's anger is different towards his kids than it is the world. Right? When you punish your children, you don't seek to destroy them. I hope not. The goal of godly punishment is that your loving anger is a chastisement that brings repentance. Right? Christian parents, when we discipline our children, the goal is to bring about repentance, not to hurt them. Pain may be part of the equation, but the end result is we want repentance. Well, God is doing the same thing here. Now, I want to make something very clear in case there's someone here who does not understand the gospel, especially with what I'm about to say. You cannot do works to make God love you, right? You can't win God's favor with all of your religiosity, with all your church attendance, with all your moral behavior. It will never be good enough to get you into heaven. But when you love the Lord, faith, genuine faith, produces genuine works. And when God's will is no longer a desire of his people's heart, guess what? He disciplines them. Because he loves his children. Just like scripture says to you parents, if you love your kids, you discipline your kids. And if you refuse to discipline your kids, scripture says you don't love them. But since we have a loving father, he has to discipline. I know it's odd to think of God as angry and that his anger is actually for our good. I think part of it is uh, the reason why there's this confusion is because I think oftentimes we see anger as a sinful emotion. Anger is one of the bad emotions, but that couldn't be further from the truth. You should be angry at what God is angry at, just as you should love what God loves. Scripture says, be angry and do not sin. There's nothing wrong with righteous anger. The Lord has it and he carries it out. And what Scripture says is the fullness of who God is, it will be worshipped and all to be worshipped. And part of that, just as much as he is 
gracious and merciful, God is righteously angry. And that too ought to be worshipped and praised. So we need to know what Habakkuk came to understand, that God's anger towards his children is a chastisement. It was meant to bring about repentance. It's not a hateful pain. It's a helpful pain, a pain with a purpose, to produce humility. Now, I want you to think of something. It made God angry that his people did not observe the law out of love, with a genuine heart, out of a response to God's promises. So I want you to please consider this. Because part of the narrative is, okay, God, what are you getting angry about? And and the other part of it is, does God still get angry at his children? Could you be a recipient of God's chastisement? Well, the answer is yes. What makes him angry? Though we are saved by grace through faith, we are called to live a holy life, to strive for holiness, But what is the standard of God's holiness? If we say we want to live the way God wants us to live, church, by what standard are we then to live? Let me ask you, do you think he is okay if we as a people disregard and flippantly ignore his moral law? I want to argue to you, present to you, that God's moral law, that be at the Ten Commandments, out of a worshipful heart that understands what God has done in response to His grace, we pursue holiness. And if you disagree, you can tell me later which of the Ten Commandments we should not strive to keep. I say this because I think it's very important to pay attention to who your God is. What does make him angry? A heart that does not desire and will not submit to his standard. A heart, though it understands grace and mercy, is hardened and spoiled. So out of a worshipful posture, and because what he's done... May we not disregard the call to be obedient and to submit all things to him or we may experience individually or collectively God's anger meant to bring about repentance. Verses 14 through 16 reads, You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them up in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. Maybe, maybe at first read it seems a little bit odd, but verse 14 is simply comparing their situation to a hopeless one, right? Uh, they have no good leader. They, they seem pretty hopeless. It's a very chaotic situation that they're in. And Habakkuk is simply going, God, you, you seem not to have helped us in this situation. Rather, you brought about the Babylonians. You seem to put us in this chaotic place. So Habakkuk 
is very confused. In fact, describes the Babylonians in 15 and 16. Now, the prophet is giving the picture that both the kingdom of Judah and the real world was, was really in. Uh, they're experiencing this dark force, that is the Babylonians, uh, from it swallowing up its foes. And Babylon seems to have mastered this skill of subduing nations and destroying people groups. And let me argue, this was a skill given to them divinely by God for the purpose of justice. Now, Habakkuk uses this fisherman metaphor for a few reasons. One is to show how helpless they were, right? It's really from their perspective, uh, the perspective of being caught and being helpless, not being able to do anything about it. Uh, growing up, I lived on the water, and I knew a little bit about this. And, uh, and we had fishing nets. Uh, I would go fishing quite often. But also we had, my favorite was my, our crab pots. We had a lot of crab pots. And I would pull up the crab pots, and you know, I would, I, there would be buckets, one for soft-shell crabs if we got them, because you have to cook them differently, and the other ones for your regular, you know, your regular crab. And so we, I'd pull, the, pull them out of the crab pots, I'd put them in, in, in the uh, buckets, and there'd be one I might set free only to throw to my four labs and watch it and giggle as like they tear it apart. It's kind of sadistic, but as a kid it seemed okay. Uh, I mean, crabs, they don't really have, they just have like a stone-cold face. They don't have a lot of personality, right? Um, so I, I would take, we take these crabs, and I don't, I, don't, I don't know about crab anatomy, I don't know if they have eyelids, but we would take seasoning and we would just dump it like all over their face and body like I'm assuming it burns a little bit maybe in the eyes I don't know so we take these crabs we put seasoning all over them and then we get a giant pot and we put the crabs in the pot and as the heat began to go up you could hear like the panic of the crabs as they're like scurrying around snipping nipping trying to get out of the pot but it's it's helpless like there's no way they're getting out and they slowly cook to death and it was delicious, right? <laughs> Absolutely delicious. It seems horrific, but it's delicious. I say all of that and say, this is how Habakkuk felt. He's watching in this helpless way. He's captured. There's no escaping the pot. And you have this monster salivating over them, waiting. I can't wait to get more. And Habakkuk is going, what are you doing? Secondly, fishing was discussed because it was the cornerstone to the Babylonians. Fishing uh, was a key to their security uh, and to their uh, prosperity. They had become incredibly wealthy and they'd become mighty, uh, partly due to this economic success. And, but understand what Habakkuk is thinking. He's like, all right, God, who is Lord over the fish? God, who's Lord over the, the currents? Who exactly is sending the fish into the nets? And, and if you don't know the answer, let me recall you to the Gospel of John, chapter 21, when Jesus sends so many fish to the nets of his disciples that his nets break. Which is why, by the way, Habakkuk cries out in verse 17. It says, is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? God, are you going to permit this? Because you have the power to stop it. You could dry up the sea. You could dry up his nets. Why are you seemingly enabling them to do what they're doing? And then he says in verse 1, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower 
and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. You get the image of Habakkuk crossing his arms, but I love it because he's willing to patiently wait. He's seeking an answer, and it seems to acknowledge that that it has to be on God's timetable. He can't force the Lord to answer. But the Lord does not owe Habakkuk an answer. But what I love is the Lord graciously gives him one. So let's look at his response. Verse 2, chapter 2. And the Lord answered me, write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so he may run, so he may run who reads it. I like how he starts off here. It's kind of funny, right? The Lord commands Habakkuk to write it down, and maybe apparently Habakkuk wrote like a doctor because he's like, listen, you got to write it plain, none of this sloppy handwriting. But he wants him to write it plain so that he and everyone else will be clear on the question that Habakkuk is asking. Verse 3 states, For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end and will not lie, for it seems slow. So if it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. The vision God gives to Habakkuk is not likely to happen. It has an appointed time. It is going to happen. This appointment knows no cancellation, no delay, no compromise. The vision that is given when justice is going to come, because understand, that's what Habakkuk wants. He wants not only for his people to be saved, but true justice towards wickedness to happen. And God promises, oh, I will. I will judge all of the wicked. I will crush them. In fact, he uses violent language. Justice is coming. In fact, God goes on to describe the Babylonians in verse 4, the first part. He says, Behold, his soul is puffed up and is not right within him. This a description of the Babylonians puffed up here. Simply, it just means swollen. And it's saying, right, the pride of the Babylonians is swollen like a tumor, and it will be their demise. Luther, Martin Luther, the great reformer, read this and taught this as, it's like having stuffed ears, the refusal to believe in God's vision of the future and refusal to repent. Now I'm going to skip the second half of verse 4. I'm going to come back to it, but I want to look at verse 5 because Habakkuk continues to describe the Babylonians. Moreover, Wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he is never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. The describes the Babylonians as a greedy people. A greedy people who lack self-control, who are unrighteously violent and disrespects what God loves. And their sinful pride that keeps them from recognizing the true God will, in fact, lead to their destruction. Just as it does for all those who refuse to acknowledge the Lordship of Jesus Christ. But after the Lord describes the Babylonians in verse 4, watch how he moves over to those who are his. And the distinction he makes. In verse 4, 
He says, I'm going to read all of it. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. The Lord makes this distinction between the wicked and the righteous. The wicked are swollen in pride and arrogant in their living, refusing to submit to the word of the Lord. But the righteous, not clothed in pride, but who have put on humility, have a steadfast reliance on their master, on their God. Trusting that even in the time of destruction, even during disappointment, even in a place filled with wickedness, the righteous remnant will and can trust in the promises of God. And if you know Genesis, right, this echoes to what the Lord told Abraham when this patriarch trusted in the words of the Lord for hope, for hope in the future. And Habakkuk and all who read it plainly are reminded that we can confidently wait for the fulfillment of God's promises. And by the way, those promises include not only his grace and mercy, but also his righteous anger. And both, church, need to be appreciated, and both need to be causes for worship. The same God who put Joseph in Egypt so there could be a slavery and an exodus, is the same God who places the remnant of Judah in Babylon so there could be a revival with Daniel, is the same God who sends you into a lost and chaotic world so that you may testify to the deeds of your God. It's the same God, the same plan, all leading us to the cross. And what's so beautiful about the cross, it is truly where you see the love and mercy of God meet the wrath of God. And rather than being cast out of God's sight due to our sin, and rather than experience God's judgment as the Babylonians will, and Scripture says they will, we see all throughout Habakkuk and biblical history that God desires to reconcile his people to himself. But again, there had to be an answer. Someone greater than a Moses, someone greater than Daniel, someone greater than Habakkuk to intercede on our behalf, someone perfect, someone eternal, someone sinless, who can secure us as a righteous people, sealed for eternity. So... He can take the wrath that we deserve so that we may be a living sacrifice, existing for him, living for him, enjoying him forever and ever for his glory and our good. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.